Today's gospel is from the 13th chapter of Luke. At that very time, there were some present who asked Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus said, do you believe that because these people suffered in that way that they were any worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And he said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Or what about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they any worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? And he said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And then he told them this parable. There was a man with a vineyard who had a fig tree planted in it, and he went out looking for fruit on that fig tree, but found none. So he said to his gardener, for three years, see, I've been coming to this fig tree to find fruit on it, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? But the gardener said to the landowner, leave it alone one more year so that I can dig around it and put manure on it that bears fruit next year well and good. If not, you can cut it down. The gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. The very weird gospel of the Lord. I always feel like this bit from Luke 13 is like walking into the middle of someone else's conversation. This really strange parable about the fig tree, of course, and then Jesus' reference to those Galileans whose blood was mingled with some sacrifices um, of Pilate's, and that other story about the falling tower of Siloam that somehow killed 18 people. So most of us need a little history and a little bit of context to make sense of what in the heck Jesus is talking about. It's helpful to know, first, that there was more than one occasion back in the days of Jesus when political unrest under Pontius Pilate led to some pretty ugly confrontations and uprisings between Roman officials, the occupying empire of the day, and the local Jews and Samaritans and other people who lived in that neck of the woods. And as you might imagine, these uprisings often led to the deaths of many people. So when Jesus says and talks about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, he's probably talking about something like that. By the same token, nowhere else in all of Scripture is there any mention of this Tower of Siloam, let alone the fact that it collapsed. We do know that there was a pool of Siloam where Jesus helped a blind man get his sight back. It was a ritual bathing pool somewhere on the south side of Jerusalem. And apparently, we can surmise at some time in the days prior to this moment with Jesus in Luke's gospel, a tower in the city wall next to or near that pool collapsed and landed on and killed 18 people. So Jesus is basically asking some rhetorical questions about these events, stuff everyone would have known about from the evening news, of course. 
and he's answering these rhetorical questions for anyone who wants to know. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered the way that they did, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans around here? In other words, did the Galileans bring their fate upon themselves? Did the Galileans deserve to die because they were troublemakers and rabble-wousers? Should the Galileans have just kept to themselves? Should they have known better than to get into it with the Romans? Should they have turned the other cheek? And Jesus' answer is, no. And what about those people who were crushed by the falling tower we've never heard of before? Do you think they had it coming to them? Was their number up because they deserved something the rest of the city's people didn't deserve? Was God waiting for those 18 particular people to be in that particular place at that particular time so that they could be smited for their very particular sins? Again, Jesus' answer is no. So if we're still having trouble making sense of this because it wasn't our time, it wasn't our place, it wasn't our people, if we can't quite wrap our brains around this first-century Palestinian history, let's just fast forward to the 20th of March, 2022, and let's see what the Gospel of Luke chapter 13 might sound like today. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Ukrainians whose blood Putin had mingled with their sacrifices. What about the ones who died in the basement of that theater in Mariupol? And Jesus might have said, do you think that because they suffered in this way, they were any worse sinners than all the other Ukrainians or all the other Russians or anybody else for that matter? Or what about those six college golfers and their coach who were killed in a car accident in Texas on Tuesday? Did they deserve it? Or those five people who died in five separate car accidents in and around Indianapolis on Friday? Could they possibly have just had it coming? Or what about the six million souls, give or take, who lost the pandemic battle with COVID-19, is their suffering a sign that they are somehow worse sinners than any of the rest of us who still sit here today? And what about the long list of prayer concerns in our bulletin every week? What about all that cancer? How about all those surgeries? What about all the sickness and the struggle that sits next to and around us right now? At some point, and in instances so close to home, the rhetorical questions Jesus asks are hard to swallow and may even feel a little bit insensitive. But that's how Jesus means, I believe, to get our attention and to assure us of something powerful and of something hopeful and of something good in the end. No, is his answer. God does not arbitrarily choose to punish some people and not others. No, when people die by the sword 
or by accident or by natural disaster, God isn't trying to teach them a lesson or to heap vengeance upon them or to show them who is the boss. No. When bad things happen to good people, it's not a test or a sign or a chance to weed out the good from the bad from the ugly. Jesus, it seems to me, is just acknowledging that bad stuff happens. And even though he's Jesus, he doesn't try to rationalize it or explain it or pretend that we can avoid it, no matter how good or faithful or righteous we may be. What Jesus does is hold all of this up before our eyes and remind us that more often than we would like to admit, the gift of our lives in this world is fragile. And more often than we'd like to admit it, our lives come to their end. Or at least they encounter all kinds of struggle and all sorts of sadness and all measure of disappointment along the way without warning, without notice, without preparation, and without a whole lot of apparent mercy enough of the time. And then because of all of that, and because he's Jesus, when he tells that weird story about the fig tree and the owner of the vineyard, Jesus gives us something faithful and something loving and something gracious to do with all of this news in the meantime. Too many in the world, I believe, would chop down the tree that wasn't producing enough fruit. And so, too many in the world, I believe, expect God to do the same. Which is why I think we are so inclined to blame collapsing towers and unexpected disasters and deadly diseases on fate or doom or the will of God or the lie that God must just need another angel up there in heaven. But Jesus reminds us that God's will, really, is all about second chances. God is like the owner of the vineyard who gives us another year, another day, another minute, another moment, whatever it is to try again, to repent, to turn over new leaves, to plant different seeds, to try new ways of being in the world, to live new lives in spite of ourselves. Because repentance, repent or perish, right? Repentance means to change, to be turned around, to live differently. And in many ways, I think repentance might mean we let ourselves be changed by the struggles of others. Falling towers, bad diagnoses, natural disasters, that we open ourselves up to the hardships that surround us, that we change our lives in order to make a difference in the lives of others. We can repent 
then by acknowledging that our lives, however long or however short they may turn out to be, are blessed, generous, grace-filled gifts from God. And we can repent by not pretending that we are owed any of that. And by not taking any of it for granted for one more second. And Jesus shows up to inspire that in all of us. Jesus, the gardener, has our back. The love of Jesus means to care for us, to tend to us, to nurture and to nourish us like a gardener tending to a bunch of less than fruitful fig trees until we begin to turn things around, until we begin to live that kind of life of repentance more often, until we begin to bear some friggin' fruit. So as we continue to make our way to the cross, as we continue to repent and to receive the forgiveness that's promised to us there, we continue to draw close to this Jesus who does not deny that evil exists, who does not deny that death will come, who does not pretend that this life of faith is an easy one every step of the way. His cross and Calvary make that abundantly clear. What we are promised is that ours is a God of second chances. Second chances for turning and for repentance and for change second chances for love and forgiveness, and second chances in spite of ourselves and in spite of this broken world where we live, second chances for new life, for hope, and for God's love in Jesus who just keeps tilling the soil of our hearts, who just keeps working the land of our lives, who just keeps patiently planting seeds and pulling weeds and choosing to give us another chance, and another chance, and another chance, until we get it right, until we rest assured in the hope of God's life everlasting in this world and for the next. Amen.